we're going we're gonna to read a passage, John chapter 10, from the Gospels, before we read our, our sermon passage this morning in Hebrews chapters 5 and 6. John chapter 10, Jesus is, is talking to and teaching his disciples and those who are around him, and he's, he's, he's taught about who he is. But in verse 22, we're going to read verses 22 to 30, Jesus gives a, a, a teaching that is a specific comfort, or should be a specific comfort to those of us who know him, who've come to, to be in relationship with him, who've been saved by his grace. Because we struggle with doubt. We struggle through life with, with, with not knowing sometimes, with, with, with not having assurance. I want you to hear Jesus' words here. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus says a number of things in this passage, but as we turn to perhaps one of the most difficult passages in the whole Bible this morning, in Hebrews chapters 5 and 6, I want us to keep that Teaching in mind. Jesus says there are, th th there are those who are sheep and those who are not. That's the metaphor he uses, which is not a flattering metaphor for us. Uh, it, it's, it's not meant to be uh, a, a metaphor that, that shows us how great we are. It's meant to be a metaphor that shows us how great he is. He's come in as the good shepherd and by his grace uh, saved us. And what he says is that if he has saved you, he will not unsave you. You, will not, you cannot be unsaved. You cannot be snatched out. You cannot be pulled away because his grace is not only strong enough to save you, it's strong enough to hold you securely. Jesus teaches this, but we come to this very difficult passage in Hebrews this morning that, that, that may raise questions. And we're actually going to spend a little bit of time both this week and next week uh, looking at this passage. What we're going to do is we're going to start in, in, in chapter 5, verse 11 this week. We're going to read down through 6 12, and then next week we're going to overlap. We're going to start back in 6-4, and we're going to read through the end of chapter 6. So we're going to overlap this very, very difficult passage in the middle here. This, this week, what I, want, what, what I want us to see is the way that the author of Hebrews, who's been lifting up this person of Jesus, the way that he turns for a, for a moment, pauses from, from looking at who Jesus is and what he's done and turns to you and to me and he, and he says, hold on. And keep going. You need to keep growing in faith. You can't be stagnant. And he does this in a number of different ways. And then, but next week we're going we're gonna to look a little bit more at the sort of the theology of what's going on here. What, what, 
Can someone lose their salvation? There's a question that comes up in this passage. We're going to dig into that a little bit next week. I'll try and give you the short answer this week, but then we're going to dig into it a little bit next week and why that matters for us, why it matters that we have assurance, assurance through Jesus Christ and what that assurance looks like. So let's read chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse 11, and we'll read down through chapter 6, verse 12. Before we read, let's pray once more. Lord God, we come to your word, and we understand that we are weak people who need your help. I am a weak person that needs your help, and help me to be a vessel this morning of your truth, and help each of us not simply to be those who are, who are receiving your word and being fed by your word, but help us to be transformed, help us to to. to to hear your word in such a way that it helps us to go tomorrow and the next day and the next day out into the world and to be witnesses and to, and to grow and to cut sin out of our life and to, and to keep from being stagnant. Lord, help your word to bear fruit. Help your word to make us the kind of people that are growing in you. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Starting in verse 511, this is God's word. About this, we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you, you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that is drunk, the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. A tough one this week, huh? 
so far in the book of Hebrews, we've seen the author uh, lift up the person of Jesus. But, but here's what the author does in Hebrews. Here's what I want you to see. He, he, he lifts up the person of Jesus throughout, but, but over and over and over again, he does this about uh, five or six different times throughout the book. He will stop what he's saying about Jesus. He'll turn towards his hearers, as it were. He'll, he'll, he'll turn towards you and me, as it were. He's, he's been talking about how great and wonderful Jesus is, how much better Jesus is than anything else that you could go to, how, how the life that's found in Jesus is different than the life you can find in anything else that you might seek life in. And, 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 but then he stops and he turns to you and to me. And he warns us. He says, don't fall away. The reason I love the way that the, the author of Hebrews does this is because what he's teaching us, what he's showing us, and even the way that he writes is that, that what we believe and the way we live are not separate things. What we believe to be true and how we then respond, how we, uh, how we interact with the circumstances of this life, how we hold on, how we treat those around us, the, the perseverance that we have through trials and through difficulties, the way we have to endure, these things are not unrelated. What we believe and what we practice are things that, that, that are woven together. So the author says, says, Jesus is better. Jesus is the great high priest. He's better than Moses. He's better than the law. He's better than, than angels. He's better than anything else you could go to. And he, and he knows you. And he knows you intimately in such a way that no one else knows you because he knows every bit of the human experience. All these things are true about, about Jesus, but the author weaves in this command over and over. Because of this, you can endure. You can hold on. Don't fall away. This morning, don't, don't be sluggish. Don't allow yourself to just drift. Friends, we can't separate what we believe from how we live and what we do. What we believe and what we do are inextricably woven together. Scripture never sees these as two separable things. A stagnant life will render us unable to grasp the person of Jesus, unable to, to, to truly know who he is. A stagnant life runs the danger of completely falling away, as we'll see this morning. And the author of Hebrews knows how deep the temptation is to just drift back, to just fall back into those old patterns, fall back to those old ways, to look to these other things, to, to, to give up when things get difficult. He knows how hard that is. He knows how much his congregation is, is tempted, and that's why he keeps doing this. He keeps coming back to this. He keeps saying, hold on. Endure. Don't be stagnant. Last week, we saw in the first 10 verses of, of chapter 5, the way that, that the author shows us the different qualifications for a high priest. 
the different qualifications for, for somebody who, who can restore our relationship, repair our relationship with God, and how, how Jesus is the one who is the ultimate high priest. He, he fulfills these qualifications in a, in a final way. He makes a way back to God for us. But right after, uh, right at the end of the argument last week, and I didn't, didn't talk about this last week because the author's going to flesh this out a lot more in chapter 7, but, but what he says is that Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, this figure who, who shows up in Genesis chapter 14, and we don't hear about him again in the Old Testament outside of a psalm that talks about him. Uh, Melchizedek is, is someone who the author will hold on to as an example of, of who Jesus is, as someone who pointed forward to to who Jesus would be. But what the author does is in chapters, at the end of chapter 5 and in chapter 6 here, he pauses, he he gets to this point where he starts to compare Jesus to Melchizedek, and then he says, about this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, but you become dull of of hearing. So he pauses, and and he's going to pick up this argument about Melchizedek and why it's so important that that Jesus is a priest in the line of Melchizedek in in chapter 7. He says, it's going to be a difficult teaching, a long teaching, but first I need to talk to you. First I need to talk to you about how you're doing spiritually. So before he comes to this complicated theological argument that that we'll come back to, we're going to hear a lot about Melchizedek in just a couple weeks here, uh, but more about Jesus. <laughs> uh, he first, he says, I know you. I know your struggles. I know your temptations. I know your difficulties. And I know how much you need to press deeper before we can get to that stuff. So here's how we're, we'll break down the passage this morning. He does this in, in four steps. He addresses them in four steps. First, he confronts them. He confronts them in verse, verses 11 to 14. Then he challenges them. He challenges them in verses 1 to 3 of chapter Six. Then he warns them, and then he encourages them. So the author confronts them and challenges them and warns them and encourages them. I want you to see these, these uh, ways that the author addresses them. First, and we'll spend the most time here, he confronts them. He confronts them in verses 11 to 14. Let me read those verses one more time. He says, about this, about this, this, These truths about Jesus, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from Evil. And here's the essence of his confrontation in these verses. It says, your spiritual lethargy is a greater danger than you realize. Your spiritual stagnation is a greater danger than you realize. The issue that he points to, the, the, the important word here is, is in verse 11. It's this Greek word, nothroi. It means sluggish or lazy. You have become dull of hearing is how the, how the ESV translates it, but, but, it's, but it's really a word about sluggishness, laziness. It says you're, 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 you're sluggish in your hearing of these things. You, you're, you, you've become lazy. You've become spiritually stagnant. And this stagnancy, this, this sluggishness is shown in a number of different ways. 
And it's preventing them from a number of different things. First of all, it's preventing them from being able to benefit others in the way that they should. You see that? You should be teachers by this time. You ought to be teachers already. You ought to be. He's not saying everybody ought to be in an official teaching role. He's saying you ought to be able to, to teach each other. You ought to be able to be in each other's lives, coming alongside each other, helping each other in the gospel, teaching each other truths and about Jesus and, 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 and about how to live as followers of Jesus. But, but you need to be taught again the very first elementary principles. You need to learn the ABCs again. The, the proper mode of the Christian life, friends, the, the way that we should operate in the Christian life is, is not one where we show up Sunday after Sunday just to receive something. Just to receive or be fed. It's not a bad thing to be fed. We come to God's word and we hear it and we are fed by it. But, but, but that's the, the mode of the Christian life is not one where we just show up Sunday after Sunday to come and receive. A Christian who's, who's not stagnant, who's growing, who's maturing, is one who begins to be someone who reproduces the gospel in the lives of those around them. Someone who, who, who begins to teach, to walk alongside others. Where my receiving God's word on a Sunday morning turns into then my going out and being in my brother's life, my sister's life, being in the, uh, the, the lives of those who don't know the Lord around me. And I'm proclaiming, I'm teaching, I'm drawing other people to them, I'm, I'm, I'm replicating these truths through my life. We ought to be contributing, growing, teaching others if we're going to be a healthy, not a stagnant church. We need to be a place where those who are growing in faith are actively coming alongside others and teaching them. Where we don't just, just receive, but we, but we walk alongside each other and we're a blessing to those around us. What the author says here is your spiritual stagnation is keeping you from being a blessing to those around you. It's preventing you from being able to do this in other people's lives. Because you've got to go back and learn the ABCs again. I have no interest in an environment in our church where we're growing simply to get people in chairs to listen Sunday in and Sunday out. The, the church uh, growth, we talked about this in the membership class this morning, the church growth gurus will talk about branding, talk about having a certain you know, personality to your church. And, and there's, something, there's something fine. Different churches have different gifts. There's different churches have different things that, that, that they tend to be better at. Uh, and, and gifts within the body, and we can express those in certain ways, but, but, but the goal of the church is not to brand and create a following. The goal of the church should never be to get people in seats who can show up and listen. The goal of the church is to be in one another's lives. The goal of the church is to, to actually walk alongside each other in the gospel. The goal of the church is that we might become teachers of one another, What I want us to be as a church is a place where we, where we take this call seriously. Not passive receivers. We're actively holding one another 
accountable. By, by the way, this requires sometimes confrontation, which is where it gets really not fun. But the author of Hebrews actually shows us how to do this well in this passage, right? He's confronting his hearers, but how is he doing it? He's doing it in such a way where, where he's clearly, he's desiring their good. He's desiring uh, their salvation. He's, he's pushing them forward uh, to, to serve and know Jesus better. He's not doing it, and there's no hint here of competition. There's no hint here of putting somebody else down. The idea here is, I want you to follow this Jesus. I want you to become a community that builds each other up. So how can we do this in each other's lives? How can we be committed to one another's growth in the gospel? It, it, their spiritual stagnation, though, not, it doesn't only prevent them from, from being a blessing to those around them and teaching those around them. It, it, it also prevents them from, from understanding even the basics of what they believe. It prevents them from understanding the, the, the ABCs. And unfortunately, this is all too descriptive of the evangelical culture that's been cultivated in our own nation. It's an idea where we, we say doctrine is not really important. Knowing things about the Lord Jesus is not really important. We don't need to press deeper. We just, we just need those, those, those very basic kind of abstract commitments of the idea that we might be able to be saved from hell and go to heaven one day and, and accept Jesus and, well, that's enough. But friends, this is not what the author of Hebrews thinks. He says that those things are important. He'll talk about those things as important in just a moment. He'll say repentance and faith are extremely important, but he's saying you can't stay there. It's not that you move on from those things in the sense that you throw them out, but you've got to dig deeper. Just like a stagnant pond cannot sustain life over time. It, 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 fish die. Mosquitoes breed. The water becomes poison. If it's stagnant for too long, just like that, a stagnant Christian can't sustain life. We cannot be stagnant. And expect to really be following the Lord Jesus. We need to grow. So it prevents them not only from, from, from understanding these, these basics, but it prevents them from moving on to solid food. And this is a, an image that's, that's really striking that the author uses here because he's talking to adults. And he's, and he's, and he's saying, you've, you've been in the faith. You're not new, brand new Christians. You should have been growing, but you are still, as he puts it at, Basically, at your, at your mother's breast. You're not able to take solid food yet. You're still taking a bottle. It's, it's only milk. Every child has to move in order to be healthy from milk to solid food. What the author says is you've stayed on milk. And that is, that is we know that there's a, an age at which it's inappropriate for a child to still be Sustaining himself or herself just on his mother's milk. The author says, that's what you're doing. You have not moved on to maturity. You've not developed in the ways that you should. You're stunted in your growth. For the author, this is particularly important because if they're not growing and knowing Christ more, they're in danger of falling away. 
in danger of falling away. The author uses the one more image in his evaluation of their current spiritual lethargy. He says those who are living on milk are, are unskilled in the word of righteousness. They're unskilled in the word of righteousness in verse 13 there. And the idea here isn't, isn't that they've been, they haven't been taught the right things. They've been, they've been taught the right things. The idea here is that they're, they're not understanding and responding. They're not, they're, they're, they're dull in their minds. They're not doing the work to understand and they're not doing the work to respond with a life that, that, that looks like the truths that they've come to understand. So, so scholars have wondered what, what's meant by this, this idea, this word of righteousness. You're unskilled in the word of righteousness. And the idea here, I think, is, is a little bit of, of both. The, the idea that they don't understand these things they've been taught, uh, scriptural truths, truths from the Bible, truths about Jesus, but, but also that they aren't living it out. There's, there's almost certainly here an element of, of practice, of living it out, of doing things that, that inculcate the kind of behavior uh, or, or um, patterns that, uh, that allow one to be a disciple of Jesus. Hey, let, let me show you why I think this is the case. The, the word of righteousness, this is, uh, uh, I think, about a lack of moral behavior that reflects the righteousness and justice to which God calls believers. Uh, Thomas Aquinas and John Chrysostom, two ancient commentaries, but, uh, commentators, both thought this um, and, and, uh, and saw this as, as the, the people are not responding or practicing the truths uh, that they've come to understand in their lives. And the author says... Uh, the author says that this word of righteousness, because you're not following this word of righteousness, because you're unskilled in this word of righteousness, that's why you're not ready to hear these doctrinal truths. That's why you're not ready to press deeper. And I think this is the opposite of the way that we normally think. We normally think that in order to, to begin acting as virtuous people, in order to, to begin practicing righteousness, we first need to understand we first need to hear. We first need to learn. But what the author says here is, is, no, 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 the opposite is true. In order to be able to start understanding, in order to be able to come and actually know who Jesus is, you have to become the kind of people. You need to be uh, working at being the kind of people who are skilled in this word of righteousness. You need to develop a, a life that follows the pattern of Jesus, that looks more like Jesus Christ in order to know him more. Hey, this, is not, this is not a... A works salvation. It's not you have to do these things in order to come uh, into relationship with Jesus in the first place, but if you are the person who has come to know Jesus, then you ought to be looking more and more like him, and you won't know him more and more until you begin to look more and more like him. So here's what I want to ask you this morning. What are, what are the most significant formative practices in your life? What are the most significant formative practices in your life? What do you spend the most time doing? What are the habits day in and day out? We may say that we don't want to be shaped by consumerism, but then how much time do we spend primarily orienting ourselves Toward those things that are shaping us to be consumers through the week? How much time do we spend uh, 
well, it could be shopping, but it could also be a, a number of, of, of other ways that we approach things. It could be showing up on, on Sunday morning and, and expecting simply to receive and not to then reproduce that in my life. <laughs> it's a, a consumeristic way of doing church. The practices we engage in aren't neutral. They're shaping us. They're making us more and more consumers sometimes. And we live in a consumeristic world that, that, that will shape us in that direction if we aren't careful, if we aren't working against that. Uh, it, we may say that we don't want to be shaped by hyper-individualism or polarization. But are we participating in community? In real, genuine community where we're sharing with one another in, so, in the kinds of ways that, that cut against the individualism that, that's the, the normal way of being for our society? Are the, are the practices that we are engaging in reflecting our desire to cut against these kinds of things in our lives? Consumerism or, or hyper-individualism or, or, or these other things that cut against the gospel of grace? What practices are you engaging in in your life? What habits do you have in your life that are cutting against these things? The author of Hebrews tells us that, that in order to understand who Jesus is, we not only have to show up and engage our intellect, but we also need to be the kinds of people who are participating in these kind of formative practices in our life, becoming the kinds of people who begin to, to, to follow Jesus in the midst of a world where it's hard to do that. So what does the author say is the solution to this spiritual stagnation? Well, we might think if we just read these, these verses on their own, we might think that the best path forward is just to stick to the ABCs. Just to, well, if they haven't moved past milk, let's just keep giving them milk. Just stick to those elementary principles. Why, why not just abandon these deeper teachings? Why do we need those? Let's just stick to the basics. But that's not what the author does. Remember, he's just told us about Jesus. And, and, and just read with me once again verses 7 to 10 of chapter 5 that we looked at last week. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Do you hear how the author describes Jesus? He describes Jesus as someone who pressed forward, who endured, who, who went through all of the suffering, who, who, who worked for our salvation, who, 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 who was the opposite of lethargic, and stagnant, who became a man and then learned obedience through what he suffered. The Son of God, the eternal Son of God, he says, learned obedience through what he suffered. He grew. So see what the author has done. He says, look at your Lord and King. Look what he did. He pressed forward. He, didn't, he wasn't just satisfied to stick with the alphabet, he, the ABCs. He wasn't just satisfied to stick with those, those elementary things, but he pressed forward. Now, look in the mirror. Are you looking like your Lord? Are you willing to press forward? Your Lord pressed forward. Will you? 
I do not have enough time this morning. <laughs> One commentator says that sinful Christians, like their sinless Lord, must, must learn and progress through a process of, of painful discipline. And this is what we're called to, friends. We, we're called to discipline. We are called to practice. We're called to work out our faith. In, in, in verse 14 there, it says that, uh, that solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And what he's saying there is, is, is you, expect, you, you, you never expect that you're going to become a high-level athlete without training. You never expect that you're going to become a skilled doctor without training. You never expect that you, that you can do these things in life without training. But how, how can you show up and expect that you can become spiritually mature without training? without practice, without work, without developing these sorts of of behaviors and habits that seek to imitate Jesus Christ, seek to follow Jesus Christ. Because if you do these things, as as you are trained in this way, you learn to distinguish good from evil. You learn learn in your life to be the kind of person who has the disposition to, to know how to live wisely, how to teach those around you, be a blessing to those around you, but also to, to see the things that, that lead to life and reject the things that lead to death and disappointment. We have just a few moments to look at. <laughs> I'm not going to get to verses 4 and on. Don't worry. We'll, we'll look at those completely next week. Um, and I know those are hard verses, so... So come next week, <laughs> and we'll look at those verses in, in detail, because those are very, very difficult verses. But let's just look at verses 1 through 3 quickly of chapter 6. Um, the author gives not only this, this confrontation, but he also gives a challenge to the hearers. He, he, you know, the, he's just confronted them. If you've ever seen, you know, uh, videos or, or documentaries about... Um, uh, lions hunting in the Serengeti, uh, you, you know that they, what, who do they go after? They don't go after the strongest looking uh, wildebeest or whatever they're hunting. Right? They go after the weak one, the child. They go after the one that's sick. They go after the one that can't run away as easily. That's, that's easy pickings. And it's, it's the same in our spiritual lives. If we are not growing, if we are not developing into the kinds of, of people who know good from evil, who know what Jesus has taught, know who he is, then, then we're, we're the weak ones. <laughs> and, and the author recognizes the spiritual danger that we're in. The author recognizes that, that, that we can fall away because of that. So he gives this challenge. He says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, and he will do it in just a chapter. Uh, but the, the author, he's called out his hearers, he's confronted them, and now he challenges them. Let us go on to maturity. Let us leave behind the ABCs. And again, he's not saying repentance and faith aren't important. He's saying let's build on those. These are the cornerstone of your relationship with Christ. Now build on them. Go on to things that are that are. That are, that are leading you deeper in, that are growing you to be more mature. The idea that the author communicates here is, is he's urging them to move forward with maturity, but, 
But as he does throughout the rest of the book, uh, he indicates here that it's not ultimately a work that rests on their own strength, but there's another one who's bringing them forward, moving them forward. The, the verb that's translated here, go on to maturity, it's, a, it's actually a passive verb. It's, it's, it could be translated, be, allow yourselves to be brought on to maturity. Allow yourselves to be brought forward. So, so you're participating in it. You need to develop these kinds of practices, but ultimately the person who's bringing you forward is the Lord Jesus Christ. The person who's going to carry you through is God himself. It doesn't ultimately come down to, to you, even though you are called to participate. You're called to work. You're called not to be sluggish, but, but, but you rely on God to do this. <laughs> you rely on God. You learn to depend on him more and more. So he says, allow yourselves to be carried along by God. <laughs> We're active, but we also seek the Lord. We seek the one who can do this in our lives. And then he talks about these, these elementary principles. What are they? Well, they're repentance and faith, washings and laying on of hands, resurrection and judgment. I don't have time to talk about each of these different things, but these are probably early uh, sort of uh, pieces that they would teach you when, when you came to be baptized. That the church would, you, you would come and you would say, I want to be baptized. I've come to know the Lord. And they, and they would say, well, let's teach these basic things, these basic truths. But what I want you to see here is that these truths, the ones that he outlines here, are, are, are connected to Jewish practice. They're ones that aren't entirely separate from Old Testament teaching. They're important things in the Christian life, but, but they're actually things that are, uh, that are true of the, the Old Testament teaching as well. The Old Testament teaches people to repent and to have faith. The Old Testament teaches people about ritual washings and about uh, a laying on of hands. The Old Testament teaches people about eternal judgment and resurrection. The Old Testament teaches these things, and, uh, and, and, and the way that the author uh, engages his hearers here is he says, you are sticking to these elementary principles that, that don't carry as much risk for you. They're swimming in an environment that, that, that they're amongst their Jewish friends, and Christianity, remember, is still a minority culture at this point, and, the, and, they're, and they're being shamed by those around them for following what's seen as a cult. And their Jewish friends and family, if they just hold to the principles that are common between Christianity and their, and their friends and family, well, then it's not quite as risky. Right? They don't need to press into these deeper truths. And, and I think we struggle with the same thing. There are a lot of things that overlap between our culture and Christianity. Love, justice, service. These, these really, really important truths, that, things that we can agree on with our culture. And we start to say, well, let's just, let's just talk about those things. The author says is you can't just talk about the things that you agree with culture on. You have to press into the things that make Christ's message distinct. You have to press into the things that make Jesus Christ, where Jesus claims to be, proclaims that he's the only way of salvation, and our culture doesn't like that quite as much. Jesus Christ claims that, 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 that he has died and paid for our sins because we are lost in our sin and cannot find salvation in any other way. And our culture does not like that as much. It's fun to talk about that. It's not as much overlap or agreement. This is what the author says is, is, is press in deeper on even these things that Jesus teaches that don't communicate so well to those around you. Jesus has offered us something distinct in himself. He hasn't just offered us a way to agree with those around us. He's offered us 
the only source of life. So as, friends, we come to his table this morning, we're going to come and receive the Lord's Supper. What we come to is the grace that Jesus offers through his work and through his very self. We, we come, and this is one of the practices that we engage in. This is one of the things that's meant to form us to be people that, 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 that worship and know him in the midst of a culture that tries to find life in other things. It's at this table that he calls you and I to come and to receive grace. To come and to be rooted in and built up in the fact that we are united to Jesus Christ and then united to one another. And that gives us the ability to go out and witness to a world that we believe needs this message. Needs to know the one who created them. The one who died to save them. So let's come in that, in that mindset this morning. And I want to read to you from, from Paul's words in, in 1 Corinthians as he calls believers, the church, to, to engage in this practice over and over. Here's what he says. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and gave thanks. And he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And having given thanks, he, he said, this cup is, is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as we come this morning, and I want to invite up Tim and Kef. Tim is going to help serve communion this morning. What we do at, at, at CORE is we invite you to come, all those who are united to Jesus Christ, all those who have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation and in him alone, and who have a meaningful relationship with a, with a church that proclaims the gospel, to come and to, to receive communion together, to receive his, his grace.